Welcome to Community Voice. We have Jeff Kirshner on the podcast. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thomas, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start out by asking you to walk through your background and career before founding Literati. And if you could help delineate decisive points which led you to what you do now, I think that would be really helpful for the listeners. You know, my path has been anything but linear. I've sort of slalomed through life, if you will. And <laughs> I, I don't and the truth is I don't know that there are decisive decisions that were made that led me to to where I am. But maybe in hindsight, if you you know, if you add them all up, maybe there's some greater thing at play that got me to this point. Graduating college, I went to the University of Michigan and, and when I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was an okay student, but I was wandering in terms of a career choice. And so I applied to law school because that's what you do when you have no idea what you want to do (laughs) and decided to move to San Francisco for a year and become a paralegal or intern for a firm while I was waiting for my applications to go through. And you know, I had an uncle who was a, a big name on a door, and so he opened up a lot of doors for me. And I quickly learned that law was not where I thought I should spend the next part of my life. And so I got out before I ever got in and uh, decided to teach soccer and bartend. Wow. And so that was really the first, you know, if you will, quote, career choice that I made. And I found myself living in San Francisco at a, a pretty fascinating time. This is 1994, so pre-internet boom, and kind of having a lot of freedom. You know, working in the service industry was lucrative for my needs at that point, and soccer was a passion of mine and and something I had always done. But I knew that wasn't what I was going to do forever. And so the next step was I decided to backtrack around the world for a year. And while that might not be considered sort of a traditional career step by any stretch, it is without question, the most valuable thing I've ever done with my life, marriage and kids aside, because it just exposed me to how other people lived. And during that time, I discovered a passion for storytelling and writing specifically. So I didn't really know what I could do with that, but I had a friend who said, hey, you should try advertising. And I thought that meant like sitting around and coming up with jingles. But what it (laughs) meant was, what it meant was like applying a methodology to business whereby you are trying to tell their story in a way that is organic to whatever the particular objective that brand or company has at that given time. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with that process. Um, And I was surrounded by people who were passionate about their craft. I got very lucky and landed at an iconic ad agency called TBWA Shiat Day. And I just really fell in love with the creative process. But as you can see, like there was no linear path even to that point. And I was doing pretty well. I was sort of the young up and coming person really, you know, putting in a lot of time and effort and and kind of making a name for myself. And then the dot-com bubble blew up here in the Bay Area and I lost my job, like many people. And that was the time where all of a sudden this word startup kept being thrown around. And I had a friend who had just had a startup and I had no idea what that meant. 
And he was like, "Hey, you spend all your you spend all your time in advertising, like thinking of ideas for others. You want to come with me, and we'll just think of ideas for ourselves." And I was just really intrigued by that. Like, I was like, "What do you mean? Like, I don't even understand. You can do that, and how do we live and survive?" And he said, "Well, you know, there's this thing called venture capital, and you can raise money for your idea if it's good enough." And to make a long story a little bit longer, we ended up embarking down this path, and that led me into the world of startups. And uh, I've started three technology companies all in the mobile tech space i've had a little bit of success plenty of failure and um yeah the the most recent one is is literati that's interesting so you know and immediately i think especially kind of for my generation when you talk about ads and marketing that sounds like making jingles all day I think we immediately go to kind of mad men and don draper and it's interesting taking kind of that perspective from that industry and obviously much different than the 50s right but that perspective going into kind of startups and i like how it was connected and that transition was really made due to the dot com bubble right due to essentially this cataclysmic event for the bay area and it seems like this kind of startup culture was born out of almost like that wreckage or those ashes and you stepped into that. So I I find that transition to be kind of an interesting introduction into Literati. And just to provide kind of a brief background on the company, why, why Litter? And can you tell us a little bit about the mission at Literati? I was never an active environmentalist. You know, I live in the Bay Area, so we have the infrastructure in place where almost everybody recycles and composts. But beyond that, you know, I wasn't a Boy Scout. I I didn't do much in the environmental space. But what happened was I was on a walk in the woods uh, near my home in Oakland with my two little kids. My daughter was four and my son two. And my daughter noticed that someone had thrown this plastic tub of cat litter into a creek. And she just looked at me and said, Daddy, that doesn't go there. And it was just this really innocent comment. But it was an eye-opener for me. You know, the Bay Area is known for being ecologically progressive and environmentally responsible, and yet everywhere you look, there's litter. And so she made this comment, and it reminded me of when I used to go to summer camp. On the morning of visiting day, the camp director would say, Quick, everybody go pick up five pieces of litter before your parents come in. And so you'd have all these kids, you know, a couple hundred of us, each picking up five pieces. And within a few minutes, we had a spotless camp. And so I thought, well, why not apply that crowdsourced model to the planet? That was the inspiration for Literati. That's the answer to why litter. The vision, to answer your question, is to create a litter-free world, which I recognize is rather ambitious. But we've taken what we believe is a very straightforward and simple approach, but has a ton of data at its foundation. And that's really been the start for what has become a a pretty interesting journey. Yeah. And for our listeners, I would tell everyone to definitely check out the website because I was immediately struck by number one, the real-time nature of it. And then even more importantly, right, you guys have kind of this map and circles and numbers of different regions. And, and as you 
go further and further in, you can kind of see these geolocators of where litter is being kind of found. And I think that level of detail was something that you just don't come across, especially in a space like picking up and taking care of litter. But stepping back, and and I kind of want to unpack this process a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about founding this company, right? Silicon Valley, social media, even consumer brands, products, but mostly kind of tech-focused. And generally with, I assume, profit being the number one delineating factor between you know VC pitch to VC pitch. Here's how we're going to get to a billion-dollar valuation in five years. A company that tracks litter, and, and I understand kind of gets to, through that process, have access to a ton of data that could be extremely helpful. But I, I wanted to ask you, was founding this company, building a team, bringing on engineers, putting together a business plan, going out looking for investors, et cetera, et cetera, was founding this company difficult? Can you walk me through kind of that founding process a little bit? Uh, of course, it was difficult, and it remains ever increasingly difficult. But unlike my other startups, this was not, hey, let's go start a company. It it sort of has evolved um, in a way that the company has sort of made itself visible over time. So let me provide some context to sort of the, the history of what happened. So my daughter makes this comment. I have this sort of epiphany, if you will, of like, wow, what if we just had lots of pieces? I mean, it's not a huge epiphany. Like, what if everybody picked up a few pieces, right? Not a great insight. But what happened next was a little bit weird. So I took this photograph of a cigarette using Instagram. There was no idea at the time. There was no rhyme or reason. I just did it. And then I took another photo and another photo and another photo. And I noticed a couple of things happening to me. The first was litter suddenly became artistic simply because of the power of Instagram. Mm. And because it became artistic, it therefore became approachable, right? So, you know, you might have this bottle cap sitting on the ground that 99 out of 100 times I would have walked right by or not cared about. And suddenly, if it was lying in the light the right way or against some interesting contrasting backdrop, it became a photo opportunity. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I was I was drawn in, if you will, right? That was the first thing that happened to me. The second thing was that at the end of a week, I had 50 or 60 photos on my phone, and I had picked up and properly discarded every single piece I had shot. So the same way people are using tools and apps like Strava or Fitbit to measure the number of miles they ride or steps they walk, I was measuring the positive impact that I was having on the planet. Simply through their 60 photos on Instagram that I took, I picked everything up. That's 60 less pieces on the ground. And inherently, that just felt right. It felt good. Intrinsically, it felt like I was doing something that was benefiting the planet. And I didn't have much of an idea beyond that. And so I just started telling people what I was doing. And others started participating. And you know, when I say telling other people, I literally mean like my brother my wife, like a few <laughs> people, most of whom were like, well, that's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> but slowly but surely people started participating. And all that we as a small group were doing was again, using Instagram, photographing one piece of litter at a time, adding this hashtag literati, and then throwing out the litter. And one day a photo showed up 
And it was the Great Wall of China in the background. And this plastic sort of beef jerky wrapper in the foreground. And that was the moment that I realized, okay, this is more than just a bunch of pretty pictures and more than just my friends. This is becoming a community, albeit on top of Instagram, but it's becoming a community. And that community is actually generating some really interesting photos. And then I took a closer look and I realized that, wait a second, each photo actually contains a ton of data. Because people were tagging Starbucks or Marlboro or Red Bull or Can or aluminum or coffee, right? There were all these interesting tags. And then I recognized, well, there's also a geotag. So if you think about it, every photo tells a story, right? We can understand who is picking up what, where, and when. And so the next thing I did, and you referred to this earlier, was I built a Google map. And when I say I, I mean I had a friend who knew how to do that kind of thing. And I, I convinced him to help out. And so we started plotting the points of litter and slowly but surely just kept looking deeper and deeper into what other bits of information could come out of this and how could we apply data and the building of a community to serve a greater good. Yeah, no, I, I love that story. I, I like how the moment was something as iconic as the Great Wall of China and then seeing kind of a wrapper in front of it and that being kind of this epiphany moment. One of the things I, I think is so interesting here is that this kind of gamification or even outside of that, you know, making something like picking litter up fun using technology, right? Five, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. And, and here we are. And you're clearly developing a community where you've turned something that was kind of disgusting, encroaching upon a beautiful park or area to something that could be fun and make you feel right positive and like you've had an impact and also track your impact, which is amazing. But one of the things I want to ask you is outside of just making it fun, what are you doing? What is the company doing with the data and information it's collecting? Obviously, different areas and geographies, I understand that, right? But why is it important to know that this is Marlboro, or this is an aluminum can, or this is a plastic can. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. So if we go back to the story, like where I left off, this notion of people on top of Instagram, right? You're getting to a point, which I, I guess I realized at some point, which was there's potential value in this data to create change. And so I was faced with this decision after spending, I don't know, maybe two or three years building this community on top of Instagram to saying, okay, while that data exists, it's not on a platform that I can do anything with, right? It's owned, if you will, by Instagram, but mm. we could use that data for good. So I was faced with this decision of, do we keep going down that path or do we try and create something proprietary? i.e. build our own app. So we we made that transition, which at the time was, you know, for me, a pretty scary thing to do. So 2016, Earth Day, we launched iOS. One year later was Android. And what that enabled us to do was to design a user experience to do exactly what you're talking about, which is to utilize data in a way that it can make a change. So I'll give you an example or several. We call them stories of impact. And it's our belief that yes, technology is important and yes, data is important. But at the end of the day, it's how you use those two things to create systemic change. So the first one that ever happened 
happened because of a group of fifth graders. And these fifth graders used literati to pick up 1,247 pieces of litter on their schoolyard. And they learned from the data that the most common type of litter were the plastic straw wrappers from their own cafeteria. So these 10-year-olds went to their principal and said, why are we still buying straws? And they stopped. And that was a great example of how the data could provide an insight that drove an action that literally would now prevent the most common type of litter from hitting these students' campus forever. And that, for me, was another eye-opening moment. Like, wow, there's real change that can occur simply by quantifying and categorizing what's on any given piece of ground. And so that was one way that the data was used for change. And that was, frankly, the, the first one. That led to other schools wanting to use literati for citizen science projects, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, we got a call from San Francisco, and specifically the Department of the Environment. And they had this really interesting question. They wanted to know what percentage of litter on the streets of San Francisco came from cigarettes. And they wanted to know that answer in order to create an excise tax on all cigarette sales. And so years before Literati existed, they had attempted this, but their data methodology was pencils and clipboards. People walked around on the streets and pretty much just kind of visually and manually counted, that's a cigarette, that's not, that is, that's not. Mm. And they created a tax and it led to, uh, it was a 20 cent tax on all cigarette sales. And then the city got sued by the tobacco industry who claimed that pencils and clipboards weren't precise and they sure were improvable. And so that's when we got this call. And you know, to, to, to summarize, our data was used to not only defend, but double that tax, which now generates about $4 million a year in annual recurring revenue for the city of San Francisco to clean it up. Or my hypothesis coming out of that project was, if you could generate that kind of revenue just by understanding cigarettes as a percentage, what about coffee cups, plastic bottles, soda cans, candy wrappers, gum wrappers, and on and on? And you know, in our belief, every city has what we call a unique litter fingerprint. And so it's one of the paths we're exploring now, but we actually think it's a pretty interesting thing to try and go figure out. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and I immediately kind of think about the two sides of that. Obviously, the tobacco company did not seem to care too much about social value given the product that they're selling. But I know there are a lot of companies out there, especially I assume in kind of grocery store chains who want to be environmentally friendly and want to have a positive kind of corporate social responsibility. And if this data were presented that, hey, the way you're packaging sandwiches or whatever, these are ending up littering your community that would essentially be something that they could easily make a corporate decision to put an end to that or come up with something, a different way to serve that food or package their meals. So it's both kind of insightful to a policymaker, but would probably also be helpful to a, a company or some sort of consumer product brand that cared about the environment and to know that their product was essentially littering the streets of their community. So let me give you let me give you an example of something that just happened that is illustrative of what you just said. Our Dutch community is an unbelievably inspired group. And about 
I don't know, maybe three or four months ago, we started seeing this word in the database that I certainly didn't recognize called antiflu. And all of a sudden, there were like 5,000 antiflu tags, 6,000 antiflu tags. And it turns out that antiflu is a Dutch mint, like an after-dinner mint. And our, uh, you know, a particular individual in the Dutch community, a gentleman named Dirk Groot, who goes by the character named Zwerfinator, um, <laughs> he sort of developed it. What he has done is truly amazing. So he started finding these antiflu plastic wrappers all over the ground. He decided to create a social media campaign targeting these antiflu wrappers and sort of mobilized a bunch of people in Holland to do this. They've picked up over 19,000 antiflu wrappers, but it didn't stop there. What they then did was they took all of the literati data, mapped it, went to the company that creates antiflu, a company called Provasco. They brought a bailiff and went to the CEO and said, here's where all your plastic wrappers are ending up. We need to stop this. You must change. And to his credit, the CEO of Provasco, because of the data, committed to changing all the wrappers for Antiflu from plastic to paper within a one-year time frame. Wow. And while, is it possible paper will end up on the ground? Absolutely. But it's a lot better and less harmful on the environment than plastic wrappers. And that's just the power of how industry can play a role when they're provided with this data. Exactly. And, and I think what what's so compelling is that right it is data whereas you're right the pencil and clipboard method wouldn't convince anyone right whereas when you have the ability to point to statistics numbers right that quantification there's no kind of rational mind that won't be able to suddenly speak the same language with the environmental activists or the CEO of you know the for-profit company, those two are essentially playing on the same or on a level playing field when they're using the same numbers. Through this data collection, you're almost able to bridge that conversation gap because it's not just kind of two heuristics or, or two people's point of view. It's here's the numbers, right? And that's just kind of what it is. I love that. So quick transition into the future. And, and I know we've this is still relatively young, right? But you've built a community and, and you brought up kind of your overactive Dutch community. And I, I was actually really impressed on the website to see that they were the number one ahead of the US, which is amazing. They just, they just passed the US and it's been funny to watch on Twitter, like representatives from the two different countries kind of competing. And now Austria and Germany are having a very <laughs> similar thing. It's 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 been kind of, uh, amazing to watch unfold. Yeah. Let me ask you a, a difficult question for any entrepreneur. Where do you envision the company, and I think more importantly, the state of litter being in the next, let's say, several years to to a decade? Obviously, the long-term goal being to remove litter from the planet, essentially putting yourselves out of business, but I, I think you and everyone else would be extremely happy if that were the case, where do you envision the company being in, let's say, five to 10 years? Yeah, so if you, if you sort of place our North Star at a litter-free world, what we think is required in order to achieve that is really three things. One is you need changes in policy. Two is you need changes in packaging. And the third is you need changes in personal responsibility. 
right? We see that as the three-legged stool from which to actually achieve this, this greater goal. And so what we're doing now, or at least trying to do, is set up the foundation to achieve each of those three things, all which centers around the technology and the mobile app and the database and the backend infrastructure that we're building. And so with respect to policy, we are starting to look at how we can work with cities. And we're already in a number of pretty deep conversations with some forward-thinking cities about how can we help you understand exactly what's lying on your streets, your sidewalks, your playgrounds, your beaches, your schoolyards, et cetera. And can we help inform the policy decisions that you and your stakeholders make based on actual, verified, truthful data? So that's one side. So having a, a real government side, an arm to what we're doing is, is a key thing that we are um, advancing. The second is how do you work with corporation and industry, right? So there are some, and we sort of sub-segment that into the groups that create some of the material that you will find on the ground, right? A lot of the consumer packaged goods companies. And then there are the groups that you may not necessarily find what they create on the ground, but they are clearly environmentally minded and focused on sustainability. And so we've been working with a number of companies around something as simple as employee engagement programs. We've done programs with Uber, with Allstate, with Reuters, um, and a number of others that we're currently talking to where it's a simple platform for these companies to mobilize their employees to go out and make a difference in their communities. The other side of that is for those brands that have materials that do end up on the ground, can our data be used to help them understand where their material ends up? Because if you talk to some of these larger manufacturers, a lot of them want that material back. So that's an interesting angle that we've we've started to play around with. And the third is personal responsibility. So we just designed an educational curriculum. We've started with middle school, uh, and we just actually launched our first pilot program with the city of Philadelphia about a week ago. And we believe that providing students with a curriculum that is, you know, STEM aligned, common core, age appropriate, where students can be out servicing the community and take that data and use it and analyze it in the classroom, we think that's a really positive way forward. And then the last thing I'll add is you mentioned gamification. So when you talk about changing personal responsibility, yes, working with younger kids and, you know, Building tomorrow's environmental stewards is, is clearly important, but we also think that there's a way to use technology that changes your behavior. The same way apps like Strava and Fitbit and RunKeeper do today, we think we can leverage some of those same habit-building features to do good for the planet. So when you string all those things together, we hope to build this foundational platform through the application, through technology that serves all those different key stakeholders to achieving our, our bigger objective. Yeah. And building that foundation. I, I like how it's not only we're picking up the litter, but you also have to go to kind of the origins of yes. that issue. And I like how you're in tandem tackling that. I, I think that's great. So a little bit of a shameful plug, but Literati worked with one of our consulting teams out of our Berkeley chapter. And I wanted to walk through that process a little bit. So what was the issue that you wanted the team to tackle or look at or research? There were two. The first was around a business model. 
So again, I didn't start Literati with this idea of creating a business, but as I've gone, you know, over the years, what has become obvious is that there's value in what we're creating. And we believe that the best way to create the biggest impact possible is by using business as a force for good. And so that then begs the question, what's the business model? Which is not easy when you're sort of d- doing something that hasn't been done before. So we, you know, we tasked the, the students with really helping us understand where some of the opportunities lied within those segments that I discussed earlier, within city government, within brands, within schools, within activists and NGOs. And so that was one process. The second was around gamification, but more specifically around currency, cryptocurrency and, and digital tokens and things of that nature. And that was sort of the path we, we started off on. And it was incredibly valuable because it reconfirmed some of our existing beliefs. And it also made us really do some second guessing around other beliefs, specifically around cryptocurrency. What we decided was we are way too early for that. And that market is still in such a yet to be defined space that for us to try and go and build our own token, go through an initial coin offering without really understanding a how that market will shape up, nor having the resources on hand to do it properly. The students really helped us uh, come to a realization quickly that we should not go down that path. Yeah. Sometimes I think the best recommendation is the no-go because that saves almost years of effort that has gone into something and could be a, a failure or hurt a company. So I think that's that's actually really, really interesting that it almost wasn't as though it was kind of a, here's the recommendation, let's implement it. It was rather, here's why we don't think you should do something. And that advice was helpful. So that's I think that's great. I wanted to now quickly go into, we're nearing the end, our lightning round section. So first one, easy one. You mentioned you went to Michigan undergrad. Will Harbaugh win a national title in our lifetimes? Yes. Okay. Favorite book that everyone should read? Another Roadside Attraction by Tom Robbins. Awesome. If you had a crystal ball, or for our Lord of the Rings fans, a Palantir, and you could know one thing in the future for sure, what would you want to know? That's a great one. I would want to know that I gave it my best shot. I would want the crystal ball to be able to to, to tell me that you know I, I didn't cut corners and uh, you know I didn't take the easy way out and I, I left it all out on the field. Mm, okay. Is the American dream still alive? I don't really even know what the American dream is. Um, you know, of course, I know what it was and how many people hold it up, but. Yes, I think it is still alive, but I don't think it's an American dream. I think it's available to many other places besides the U.S. I would actually argue that there are countries where the American dream is probably better suited than America. Mm, mm. Jeff Kirshner, thank you for coming on the podcast. I think all of our U.S. listeners now have to go download this app and do our part to get us over the Netherlands. We would love to have you join the community. And Thomas, thank you so much for the opportunity of sharing our story. 